Welcome to the Lee Company Thrive Podcast. I am your chaplain at Lee Company, Kyle Froman, and I'm so thankful and excited that you chose to join us for Thrive this week. Now, I know this might come as a bit of a surprise to each of you, but I am a bit of a car guy. If you ever had the opportunity to meet my mom, one of the things you're likely to hear from her is that you would have never found me holding rattles as a baby. Rather, I was always holding on to Hot Wheels. There's a lot of forbidden old family videos out there in circulation. I'd reckon to say my brother is holding most of them hostage. And they're forbidden because I was a total dork up until, well... Okay, I still am a bit of a dork. But in one of those videos, you see a very young Kyle. I was probably six or seven years old, and it was back when we were living in St. Louis, Missouri. And I walk up to a table in the video stating, I gotta empty my pockets. I kept stating it over and over. I gotta empty my pockets. I gotta empty my pockets. And as I repeated this mantra, I unloaded a plethora of cars from my pant pockets. Keep in mind, these were small pants. A six or seven-year-old doesn't have that big of a pocket. And I would say at least 20 to 25 Hot Wheels surfaced from the depths of these small pockets onto the surface of the table. Cars have always been a part of my life. At 9, 10 years old, my room was filled with die-cast, racing die-cast cars that I would go in and on a weekly basis dust each car individually. I remember my first real car. It was a Saturn SL1. Do you remember the Saturn brand and company? A different kind of car? A different kind of company? Man, do I miss my Saturn. That Saturn SL1 quickly found itself under my scalpel of making it look different. The first thing was, of course, what every teenager does, and I had to black out the windows. After that came a set of five-spoke polished wheels, because chrome was a bit too expensive for me. Then I put three 10-inch subwoofers in it. That way, everyone could be sure to hear me rattling on my way home. They knew when I was in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, someone liked those subwoofers a little more than I did and busted out one of the blacked-out windows to make those speakers their own. I also had a light-up neon shift knob there on the center console. And do you remember what I said about being a dork? It even had a chain license plate frame, and across the front windshield, that car said Casanova. Hey, I'm not proud of it, but it was what it was. That Saturn eventually found itself traded in for another Saturn. I had to go from a four-door to a two-door, and this one was the Saturn Sports Coupe. It was 1999. It was a white car. I had it lowered and put racing stripes on it and bought a body kit. Of course, the exhaust was louder than it should be for a four-cylinder car. It sounded more like a, a weed eater than a car had its fancy wheels, and, well, it looked a bit like it stepped out of the Fast and Furious. And I kind of drove it that way at times. The Saturn was eventually traded for a Celica GT. That blue Celica GT was one of my favorite cars that I owned as a teenager. It was my first kind of sports car. 
Saturn was sporty, but it wasn't a sports car. The Celica GT had an untimely death on Lewisburg Pike as it was rear-ended by an F-150 going 60 miles an hour. So after the Celica GT came a Cavalier Z24. A few other cars made its way into the mix throughout my life. A Saturn S200, which is, I don't know what I was thinking on that one. That got traded for a Chevy HHR. And now we have a Swagger Wagon, a Toyota Sienna. But parked alongside the family cars were some other cars that were kind of my toys. One was a 97 BMW that someone in the family was gracious enough to gift me with. And then most recently was a Hyundai Veloster Turbo. I even had a 1977 Monte Carlo for a while. Never even cranked it once. And let's not forget about the race car. But cars have always been kind of my thing. Heading into the first of the year, there was a bit of a changing of the guard in the garage again, and I found myself with a pick-em-up truck, and I absolutely love it. This is the first truck that I've ever owned, and man, I'm having a lot of fun being able to move stuff. While I certainly work to not allow my possessions to own me, I do take pride in maintaining and keeping our things up and just taking care of things. And well, I'm really enjoying owning such a nice truck. I promise you that all of this car talk is going somewhere. You see, a few weeks back, Michelle and I went on a date. And this is a new concept for us as well. Coming off of the road and limiting travel has allowed us to, as a couple, escape and have dates together. And it's been pretty remarkable, really. And we went on a date to Plaza Mariachi off of Nolansville Road just up from Harding Place. If you've not been there before, it's totally worth checking out. It's a great date spot with a lot of fun food options and live music, but it's equally as safe and fun for families together as well. At least, I say it's safe because we were there at 5 p.m. And on this particular date, we took the truck. I have to admit, as a guy... There's a bit of confidence that comes along with lifting your lady into a big old truck versus years of her ducking into a smaller car. No, the Sienna Swagger Wagon is not our typical date vehicle. The day of our date, I spent a good amount of time out cleaning the worksite mud, dust, and dirt off of Ferdinand. That's the name that the boys gave our truck and getting him ready for the big date. That evening, away we went. As we were exiting off of I-65 onto Harding Place, we came to a stop at the intersection there at Harding, and we were allowing another car to pass by before we started going again. As we stopped, the truck lurched and shook abruptly. Unfortunately, the forward lurch and abrupt stop were not associated with me and the brakes. They were associated with the SUV behind us that had just rear-ended Ferdinand. It wasn't an extremely severe impact, but it was hard enough that I knew something was going to be amiss when I got to the back of the truck. As I climbed down the ladder out of my truck, okay, okay, it's not that tall, and walked to the back of the truck, I was so disappointed. Remember my saying that I take a lot of pride in maintaining our stuff and that I'm a bit of a car guy? 
Well, I just knew I was going to have to go on our date with a mangled bumper or tailgate. Before fully diagnosing the situation, the gentleman who hit me, along with his wife, got out of their car and walked towards the truck. He looked at me, and then he looked at the truck, and he gave me a thumbs up, as if to say, everything looks great, so let's go on our way. As I turned and looked the bumper over, while the damage was very, very minor, there was some of the plastic molding that was cracked in one place and warped and bent a little in the other. And I turned to him and said, no, actually, it's not okay. It wasn't much damage at all, but it was damage, nonetheless, that I didn't cause. It became very apparent that English was not his primary language. In fact, he only had a few words in his English arsenal. In that moment, I was ready to call and get a police report so I could be sure that my bumper was back to perfect. Yet... In a matter of seconds, my heart took a complete about face. The piece on my truck that was damaged couldn't have been more than two or three hundred dollars tops. And the damage wasn't even visible at just a glance. Conversely, I didn't know this other person's story. I didn't know what calling the police would mean to his day, his week, or even his life. Was it worth it for just stuff? I've been in the middle of a book by one of my favorite authors, Bob Goff, called Everyone Always. The premise is quite simple. Love everybody. Always. It's not about being a pushover, but about looking for ways to lavish love on others. And the thought hit me. Kyle, is your desire to make your stuff perfect worth the potential of destroying someone else's life? Everybody, always. I stopped myself mid-sentence, gave the man and his wife a thumbs up back at him, and said, Via con Dios to them, climbed back in the truck, and off I went. Grace. Not giving others what they deserve. When it is within our power to grant it, it is a beautifully powerful thing. Ever since this encounter, I've been reflecting on grace. Not only how I extend grace towards others, but also how I accept the grace of God that I could never earn. Jay Gresham, an early 20th century theologian, wrote this, The very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. Grace is the love of God to the unlovely. B.B. Warfield said grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. And Paul Zoll said grace is unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. You see, religions throughout the centuries have been built around the premise that what we do is how we find favor and right standing with deity through religion. Yet Christianity is remarkably different and that it isn't about how we earn our way through our words, our deeds, and our thoughts. Karma pays us back for what we do, whereas grace affords us what we could never earn. Within that, Christianity then is not how do we earn favor with God, rather how do we respond to a favor that we could never earn. 
The man that rear-ended me didn't deserve a thumbs up and a blessing. He deserved a ticket and a bill. In our lives, what we deserve for the way we live is judgment. It's separation. It's no hope of resurrection. But what is extended to us instead? That is grace. Do you remember Jesus' disciple Peter? As Jesus and his disciples sat around the table breaking bread together, intimately conversing prior to what was to be, Jesus called out Peter. Jesus let Peter know that he was going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Peter denied this absurd assertion. He affirmed his steadfastness with Jesus, even to the point of following Jesus to the cross. Yet, what transpired? As Jesus was betrayed by Judas and then arrested in Gethsemane, he found himself in front of the Sanhedrin. Peter trailed him at a distance and found himself in the courtyard outside as the trial unfolded. A servant spotted him, claiming this man was with Jesus. Peter denied. Then another girl. Peter denied her as well. Then a group gathered around. As for Peter, denial. The rooster crowed. After Jesus navigated the pain and horror that was to follow, he found himself wrapped and lying in the tomb. Mary Magdalene came to anoint his body, and he wasn't there. Instead, an angel of the Lord was present, and this is what that angel spoke. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not there. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you, go tell the disciples and Peter. Of everyone that followed Jesus, they were lumped into the disciples, yet Peter was called out. Why? Why did the angel speak and Peter after what Peter had done? He denied Jesus not once, not twice, three times. Why and Peter? Grace. Jesus still accepted Peter when he didn't deserve it. Jesus still loved Peter when he didn't deserve it. Jesus still trusted Peter when he didn't deserve it. Tell Peter was an extension of grace, of love, of forgiveness. Peter certainly wasn't deserving. But Jesus, we've all hit the car in front of us in our lives. We've all done things through sin that leave us inadequate, unworthy, deserving of the punishment that befalls us all. But Jesus, here's the thing about God's grace in our lives, though. It's free, but we have to accept it. I like how Rick Warren summarizes receiving grace when he wrote this. The Bible gives an easy three-word answer for how you can receive the grace of God by trusting Christ. The Bible says in John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. God's grace is wrapped entirely in a person, Jesus. You can't get it through religion or ritual. You can't get it by following the rules. You get it through Jesus. 
God's grace is free. You simply need to accept it. But let me be very clear. God's grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. Grace is the most expensive commodity there is. Jesus died on the cross to pay for it. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished three things in our lives. It paid the penalty for sin. It broke the power of sin, and the presence of sin will be obliterated. The costly grace God offers will change everything about your life. You just have to accept it. Grace is a beautiful gift. Grace is our basis of identity, of behavior, of strength, of speech, of service, sufficiency, enduring suffering, participation with God. Grace is our future and our hope. The gospel of God's grace is something that each of us need to be reminded of. Christianity isn't a merit system, and grace is not earned. But may we learn to receive the grace in front of us, but may we also learn to respond to it with our heart, our life, and our actions. I encourage you in the week ahead to not only contemplate the grace that you've received, or for some of us to contemplate receiving the grace that God is offering through Jesus, but I encourage you to also extend grace to others as well to those who deserve it and those who don't. In the words of Bob Goff, everyone, always. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs>